Welcome to the In His Voice podcast hosted by me, Rob L. Lowe, where we talk about the trials and tribulations that deeply impact the lives of boys and men without ever bashing women. We talk about everything from the bedroom to the boardroom, from the playground to the stadium and everything in between. So today, great topic. It's time to unpack some stuff. So if you know me and you follow me, you know my history as an as a HR executive. Uh, within my role also uh, we're responsible for diversity, equity, inclusion. I don't consider myself a guru. I consider myself one who is very conscious and very uh, insightful, but also passionate about making sure that the world that we live in, the jobs that we, that we work in are inclusive and create opportunities for people from all backgrounds. And, and, and what I've seen in the last couple of years, if you think about 2020, with what happened with um, Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and you saw the whole Black Lives Matter movement. You saw this huge pendulum swing where there was this momentum of social justice. Uh, some of that, that translated into policies and, and practices that happened in corporations and academic institutions. Well, here we are in 2023, three years later, and it seems like the pendulum has swung the other way in many cases. We don't know if that's just about fundamental belief change or is that about a backlash because the pendulum swung so far in the other direction. And, and people like myself that have stepped out in this space to do entrepreneurial work have experienced or are experiencing the impacts of that, whether that's companies that um, are not bringing in consultants to do diversity work, whether companies are just scaling back on the amount of money that they spend on diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, there's a whole gambit of things, but even in doing that, there's a lot of reasons why. Sometimes it's based on laws that have been passed in their states, uh, academic institutions in, in many states like Florida are at risk of losing funding. Um, states like Texas and Iowa have passed legislation uh, around uh, diversity policies. And so this being in this space at this time, while it's important, it also is very tricky. You have to tread lightly. You have to think about what states are you operating in, what's happening in those states, and do companies really have the funds to support um, the funds and the will in order to take on the, the, this, this gargantuan task of trying to create an inclusive culture. So on my, on my topic today uh, about this space of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and on this show today, uh, I have a guest who is an expert in this area. I had him on a couple months back. Uh, we did a show uh, about the impact of fathers uh, in our lives and, and what that means and how it molded us. And I told him that I'm having back. So on my last show, I was rocking a fedora. And I, so he called me today because today he's rocking a fedora. I want to welcome to the show Dr. Ken Coopwood. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back. Yeah, man. You, yeah, you got me this time. I see you this time. I, yeah, I got my hat. Yeah. You know, I couldn't. I, I didn't want you to be by yourself. So. Ah, yeah. But I yeah, see, but see, I didn't know you was going to rock a, a Phi Beta Sigma hat, well, you, you know. know. That, you know, what else would a Sigma man have? Uh, well, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, and you know what? You know, you got some gold up there. <laughs> I, ju I just caught, right? So the last time I was here. Mm -hmm. You pulled these blue glasses up, yeah, right? Yeah. And I was drinking water, and I was like, huh, blue. Mm -hmm. He pulled those out again. Again. Right. 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 Well, you know, I like to keep the, a certain standard of hospitality. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> For those who know, know I'm an alpha. But every time I see Ken, uh, you know, we go at it. And, and this, this is a, not only a good brother, a good brother of Phi Beta Sigma. He was a mentor of mine. 
uh, or is a mentor of mine, both in this space of diversity, equity, inclusion. But um, I've been knowing Ken since I was probably 21 years old, mm -hmm. and, and he gave me some solid advice as a young man uh, about school relationships. And then we reconnected, you know, a couple years back in this space of diversity, equity, inclusion. And I found out he was doing some wonderful things. He asked me to be a guest speaker. Uh, I was able to support uh, some of the things he was doing through my organizations. But here we are. I stepped out on faith and, and decided to become an entrepreneur and do motivational speaking, leadership retreats. Some of that is based around diversity, equity, inclusion. And I said, who better for me to have this conversation with than the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. <laughs> Ken Cooper? Ken, all right, so let's, okay. let's, let's get into this, man. Okay. How long have long you been doing this? How long have you been a consultant? Actually, um, since about 1996, I actually started consulting while I was doing full-time work. And a lot of people don't know this, but children were my first love. And I was doing diversity workshops for children. And what really got me splashed in, um, in terms of something that I thought I could do that had a revelational and evolutional impact on people, is when I found myself in a room with all white females, ages 12 to 16, all of them pregnant by black men. Wow. Yeah. And they asking me why. Why would he uh, get me pregnant and then, you know, he, bam, he's gone. These, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Dude, <laughs> dude. These are predominantly, if not all white females. It's all white females, yeah. Asking you, the, the, man, the choices that would have led these young black males to get them pregnant and then leave. And then leave, yeah. So, um... <sighs> Yeah, just, just the fact, of course, I didn't have all the answers. Man! Yeah, yeah okay. And, of course, um, um, I didn't share the emotional impact that they had. You know, I was, it was really a, a really strong effort for me to, to empathize with what was going on with them and in their lives and uh, to help them process for themselves because, you know, the first thing that comes with wanting to know about their situation is ownership of how they got in that situation. You know, what they were doing um, as part of the relationship, you know, that, uh, you know, eventually got to a point where both people, um, or at least one of them, didn't want to continue with it anymore. But, um, you know, the point I was making is it was such a tremendous opportunity to impart um, whatever amount of wisdom I could to that situation <clears throat> and to give people in the audience an opportunity to talk um, with some civility yeah. to another black male. You know, we weren't wow. arguing. We weren't, um, <clears throat> you know, degrading each other. And, of course, I was older yeah. than, than, the, than the kids, but, you know, I was still in my early 20s, you know, and so from there, I was able to, to say, hey, this may be something I might, you know, poke around a little bit more about. And then um, I found myself in Fort Wayne um, you know, a few years later, and I was still doing workshops 
but I was playing ball at the the local uh, YMCA, and I heard people clapping. It was real noisy. And so I put the ball down, and I went back in the room, and I saw the this group of people, and they had the door open. And I'm thinking, why didn't they close the door? You know, they're having something personal. But it wasn't personal. It was a public, open forum for people who um, just wanted to know how to get along better, how to be a better part of their community. And um, that group, um, as I recall, it was mostly women, but maybe it was about 60, 40. And there was a good number of gay men in there. And the leader was a white female with cerebral palsy. Wow. Yeah. And so I sat and I listened. Mm. And the part that gripped me the most was this exercise called speak outs. And speak outs is when <clears throat> you get up and you find a person who's been um, maybe not so readily participating throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, little that I know at the time is you time speak outs towards right after lunch, right when people have that, they've eaten, they come back, they don't have a whole lot of high energy. And if you're um, bored or if you're emotional, they say that's a higher time to get emotions out of you. So the, the, the lady pulls a, um, a white male. And unbeknownst to me, he had shared a story earlier about something we talked about in our previous podcast about being a father. Wow. And he wanted custody of his children. And so she grabbed his hands and she hadn't put his hands together like this. Yeah. And I didn't know why at first, but you'll find out shortly. Okay. So she put his hands here and she grasped her hands around his. And she says, why do you think you should have your children? You know men can't uh, be good parents. And um, if you don't have breasts and a vagina, you have no business with kids. And, he's, and, he's, and he says, that's not true. I love my kids, and I would do nothing to hurt them. Well, you're hurting them just by wanting them. They need to be with their mother and not with you. You know, and she, every time she spoke with them, she would push. He said, you're not really a good parent. You just don't want to pay child support. You're, you know, something, you know, she yeah. did. And finally, he pulled apart, and he took a swing at her like she was a, a seven-foot-tall giant. And she was uh, pretty agile. She ducked, <laughs> and she got under his swing, and she grabbed a hold of him, and she hugged him and hugged him, and he was just, don't take me away from my kids. I would never hurt my kids. And he was just wailing. And finally, he just broke down into tears, and he fell to the floor, and she went with him. And she just held on to him. She held the, on to him. Hold on. This, yeah. was, this was the trainer, the speaker? This was the trainer. And so she was trying to trigger that type of yeah, response? Yeah, and she brought, yeah, and it was a, a per, intentionally antagonistic. And after he got out what he had to say, uh -huh. and that's really ultimately what the exercise was about, um, hence the name Speak Out. After he got out what he had to say, she gave him the floor. And she's like, tell the audience what you never want to be heard or said about single fathers. You know, and he said, please don't tell a man he's not worthy. 
to father his, his children. Please don't tell a man that he's not genetically um, predisposed, predisposed to love and care for uh, kids regardless of their gender. You know, those kind of things. Wow. Well, and it was so powerful. And to me, the parallel was like somebody giving their life over, you know, to the Lord. It was just a, such a revelation. And they stood up for him, and they clapped for him about three minutes, standing ovation. Wow. You know, so I'm like, what a way to impact people's lives. And that's how I got my start at Liberty Training. Really? Mm-hmm. And I went and got trained at the Coalition for Youth Services in, in, is in Washington. And that was, I took off from there. Okay, so I, I <laughs> okay, so I got to go back to the first story, and then I'll come back. You talked about the story, uh, the, the the group of young white women who yeah. had these experiences with black men, and in my book, um, that's out. I share about four or five stories mm-hmm. of neg- negative experiences I had with white women. Um, in 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 professional settings, right? Just being a black man and experiencing that, and and they were painful and frustrating. I also share stories of very positive experiences I had with some white women in my life. Uh, one who was my daughter's godmother, um, and um, some folks who really mentored important to me. But I've never ever heard. Mm-hmm. I've never been privy either in person or indirectly a conversation where white women were truly vulnerable mm. at the expense of black men. Yeah. Right? Justifiably. Yeah. Right? Because we know historically there's a lot of unjustifiable sure. victims and trauma and, and what that led. But to hear that. Man, that was powerful for yeah. me. Man, that's that's really really powerful. <clears throat> and then I'll know that you know your path in higher ed. You you work for a lot of universities. We talked about that on the last show. But it was only after this experience did you make a commitment to say I'm, I'm really about to go down this path now. Yeah, I'm, you know, and because I didn't realize what I was learning. Wow. I just know how it made me feel. And because of that feeling, I was like, I can do. I can help people this way. Because it wasn't about what policy I can push out yeah. in that moment. Yeah. It wasn't about what behavioral change um, I was advocating for. It was about listening and learning where people find themselves or yeah. what state of being they become or they come to after this type of relationship or yeah. after something happens. You know, so when the utopia of the relationship is gone, when whatever excitement um, that relationship brought, yeah. you know, whether it was uh, authentic or just infatuation, yeah. you left with a baby, okay? And you left, in all those cases, with some parents who have to deal with uh, your, your behavior, your decision uh, to have sex, um, and other... You know, there's you know, yeah. exponential impacts that happen, family, relations, etc. And, you know, some of those 
kids as you might expect had bigoted parents. So yeah. they're, they're out experimenting, you know, against the will of their parents, yeah. and, and now here comes a, a, a baby. So I don't know how I got into that circumstance, but um, I was there. And I was in the school system, in the alternative school system, right there in Vigo County. You know? Wow. So I was college age doing that, that work. When did you start Coupe de Lou? And, and remind folks yeah. about Coupe de Lou, right? So Coupe de Lou actually is the last name of my company in terms of name okay. changes. Yeah. So I started out in actually 1996 yeah. with a company called CPWD. And that's just my last name without the O's. Okay. And so that was Coopwood Progressive Workshops and Developments. Okay. And, and my mother named the company. So um, I was going to say Coopwood Professional Workshops, but she said progressive is more what you're trying to get people yeah. to do. Yeah, you yeah. want them to progress from one stage of identity to the next. Yeah. So I stuck with that. And I had that name on paper and with the government up until actually 2018, uh, 2017. You know, it just was, wasn't active. Yeah, you yeah. Know, but I could still I could still do work under there uh -huh. and, and um, get paid under that name, but it just wasn't active. Um, while it was still kind of on the back burner, you know, I took a leap of faith and I worked with a, another person and I had a company that went by another name, but I wasn't really using <clears throat> the materials and tools I had for CPWD. Okay. All right. So when I transitioned from work with that other company, I had CPWD and I had the resources and um, tools from the, the short-lived company. Okay. But I didn't want it all to be scattered. Okay. So I consolidated, and I was thinking, trying to think of a name to call it. And I was in one of my uh, workshops, and I had one of the clients say, you know, the problem here is everybody wants to have education about the DEI space. Tell me why this and tell me why that. Yeah. But nobody wants to lead Okay, nobody wants to lead people to that next paradigm yeah. because that's where the risk is. Yeah. Okay, because if you're really leading, you're saying that the current pattern or chain of activities are they not only don't work, they are out of line with the circumstances of American society, even the world society. Yeah. Okay, and just like you mentioned earlier, even after all those deaths and and all those social um spikes yeah. in awareness, we're still not only going back, but we went beyond going back because there's nobody leading the change. There's a lot of people educating and even complaining about it. Yeah. You see, so the person said, we need education and leadership. And I said, you're right. It's got to be both. Yeah. So I said, um, with diversity, leadership and education for everybody. Yeah. So I chose Universal. So Cooper Diversity Leadership and Education Universal. That's where the name came. You know, it's crazy because <laughs> I didn't know that. You said it on the last show. That was my mm -hmm. first time. 
but I actually thought it was a play on words of um, uh, alley-oop. Like, alley-oop. Like, like, like <laughs> I, look, I thought it was a play on words <laughs> that, that companies will call on you mm. to help them score. Oh, wow. So Coop like a coup de loop. <laughs> That's where I thought it came from. Wow. Yeah, so mm. if you use that and you make money, I want royalties on that. But okay, yeah, I, I literally <laughs> thought that's what it came from. It was like people hire you because mm. they need, instead of an alley-oop, they mm. need a coup de loop, yeah. right? Well, I did want to have a jingle, okay. if you will, and I, I didn't think of that one, but... You know, that's the children's song, Coop, 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 the Loop, Skip, 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 ah. the Loop. You know, and I thought, and I almost didn't make the word, the um, <clears throat> name because of that. But the last few years before I made the name change, the old company uh, was Coop Lou, and it was another person. Yeah. Um, and so the Lou was L E W. Okay. Um, because I had so much of the material. Um, in terms of intellectual property and um, and the process for yeah. using that stuff, the marketing professionals I worked with said, don't go so far away from what you've been branding in terms of uh, what people say. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Cause, so they still got Coop, okay? Yeah. But now they got Coop D. Lou. It's just a different Lou, you know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But now the acronym has more meaning behind it. You, you, you know, when I started this podcast, I talked about 2020 mm. and the shift. Mm. So I think you have to admit 2020 was, you know, it was a, it was a it was man, it was a emotional year. You know, the world shut down. Yeah. And in the midst of the world <clears throat> shutting down, we had three of the most recognized and I say recognized because they weren't the most horrific, right, yes, historically. Yeah, right. But the most recognized um, tragic events that happened to African Americans, right, yes. in this country. And then you had the Asian hate, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, incidents that took place in this country, man. So it sparked this change. And what I felt is at that time, the companies that I worked for as well as other companies, no one wanted to be on the wrong side of history. No. Right? <laughs> and and neither did political figures. They were like, look, behind doors, I may believe something different, but right now, this is what I'm saying. Exactly. Because if you can get the NFL to put Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. at the back of an end zone, right? Not because I'm not saying people don't believe in it, but because there was such such backlash with the Colin Kaepernick and everything that he did. Like that told you how how impactful this movement was. All right, slowly we come back out of COVID. Mm-hmm. Slowly people back to work. We get new people in office, and you know just just like clockwork, every time we get a new um, governing party, right? Things change. But I didn't, I didn't expect to see this. Yeah. Affirmative action, taken out of universities. Yes. Right. The overturn of, of uh, Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Right. Uh, and now, you know, eight to ten states passed laws over the last three years mm-hmm. that are that is that were designed to specifically target how much 
content could be shared or taught in corporations mm -hmm. and in academic institutions. Yes. And the fear of if you violate those, you could lose funding or be fined. Yeah. I want to get your thoughts, man. <laughs> your thoughts over, well, over this, this whole well, well, shift. That's, that's a lot to unpack. But, you know, the, you know, instead of unpacking, you know, I like to keep things at their core. Okay. Right? The core thing that I've learned and I've experienced is the behavior changes that we see yeah. are not really changes at all. You know, if you look at American history, you know, what you don't see is what you don't see. Okay, and what I mean by that, as you said, and you mentioned it, these were some of the most um, uh, recognized, okay, which means they were public. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. In American history, a whole bunch of lynching and and uh, inappropriate behavior toward people of color and Asians, that's unfortunately yeah. American culture. You know, and I and I think about what Jeffrey Robinson's doing right now. Yeah. And he's saying, look at the American culture. Okay? Don't just look at any particular incident, but um, understand the impact on this. As a child, how did you learn not to yell in the library? Okay? Wow. Think about that. Yeah. See, it's the same type of uh, indoctrination, good, bad, or indifferent, that allows people to behave a certain way toward another human being, you know, yeah. because they look different. Yeah. And that behavior is acceptable because it's part of the culture. Okay, whether that person is uh, mean in spirit by nature or it's a learned behavior, don't matter. The impact is still the same. One person can impact or uh, afflict their will on another person, formally or informally, because a certain culture exists. Okay? And that's where, um, like you go back to the civil rights movement, that's why when, even though they integrated the schools, okay, people of color probably actually got treated worse because they didn't integrate the teachers. You see? Ooh. The education, Ooh. the system yeah. stayed the same. They just moved the kids around. You, you know, we, we, we were talking about um, the difference between being an authentic leader and an authentic person, mm -hmm. right? And I gave the analogy. I said... In corporations, you know, there's this big push to be an authentic leader. And I say, really, be an authentic person. Because an authentic leader, and I gave the example that says, um, let's say the company implemented a policy that the, that the leader didn't like. The leader may tell their person, uh, tell their team, I really don't like that policy either. Um, and... Uh, or they may tell their team, you know what, I know that you don't like that policy, and I hate that it bothers you like that, and I can feel your energy and your anger, and I want to support you. So I'm being authentic and tell you I recognize what's happened to you, right? But what they don't do is they don't go that step further and say, but let me tell you, I disagree with it too. Let me tell you why I disagree with it, because I fundamentally think it's flawed. I think it has all type of... 
uh, potential ramifications for those that are impacted. And so when, when that happens, people get to hear a limited perspective. Mm -hmm. And so going back to what you said, it, it really does resonate with me um, that that diversity, um, you know what, I'll say it this way. Diversity and its accuracy and its impact is in the eyes of the beholder. Sure. It's in the eyes of the beholder, right? Mm -hmm. Being being someone who's been doing this and being this expert, and and now you you you, you, you your PhD, you've been in academic institutions at the highest level, you reported to presidents. What does this feel like to you today? Where we're at, what does this feel like? And then the clients that you work with, you don't have to give their names, but the clients you work with, where are they at? What are their fears? What are you seeing? And then how do we help them? But, but tell me, what does this feel like to you? Yeah. Well, across the board, most of the time, you got to think about um, the industry, the sector. So whether it's, it's corporate America, federal government, nonprofit, or higher education, I've worked in all of them. Um, the culture of that sector is driving whether there's a reactive or proactive um, response to what's happening across the country. Some institutions are saying, hell no, we are not backtracking the progress that we've made with regard to DEI. Yeah. Others are saying, we can't afford to lose the money yeah. that, that's been promised to us um, for DEI. So you have to first look at what is the source of the response. Yeah. And, and you don't have to look far for most um, sectors yeah. to find out what that is. Now, higher education in particular has a history of reactionary responses to anything political or socially um, misaligned with its circumstances. Okay. All right, because of that, it's in the most peculiar pickle because higher education also, also has a history of bringing people of color to the campus for all kind of reasons other than academic. Yeah, boy, okay. okay. You gonna, go on and right. touch on it. No, I'm going <laughs> to touch on it. So you think about it, and me being a former Division One athlete, Yeah. you know, and having the experience of being on the conveyor belt where you come in, they wind you and dine you, you spend a lot of time with non-academic activities, non-academic people in the community, yeah. boosters, et cetera, yeah. okay, as long as you can run that ball or you can uh, dunk that ball or whatever you can do, yeah. then you have a place. Yeah. But when it comes to your personal development, your your um, process toward professionalism, yeah. okay, that's a whole different ball game. And when you take places like, or states like Florida, what you have is laws that saying almost literally, if you play ball, we we love you. Yeah, as yeah. soon as you take off that uniform, we don't want you to know who you are. We don't want you to be strong in your identity. Yeah. We don't want you holistically educated to the point that you can function across cultures and within groups and um uh, outside of groups that look like you and don't. See, instead they're saying, 
learn what we teach you, and that should be enough. So in other words, your identity off the field isn't important. It isn't relevant. And in, in fact, it's not needed. So why read about it? You see? Yeah. So that is a serious in-your-face perspective, but that's what these laws amount to. Okay? And so people are responding to that, particularly in corporate America, because you need talent that's prepared for a global society, increasingly global society. And institutions are supposed to be the microcosm for that development. So how can you actually pass a law that's contrary to what you publicly display to the American public? It says we're diverse. You know, the, the, the Supreme Court, right, said affirmative action for the sake of determining college interest mm -hmm. uh, standards is no longer acceptable. It doesn't say that, unless I, I may say it wrong, but I don't believe it that they came out and said that you can't use uh, economic background, right? Mm -hmm. So you, if you come from a marginalized community. And so if you think about that, most people who come from marginalized community are people of color. Yeah. So you can't say race, but I'll use the fact you're from a marginalized right. community mm -hmm. as justification to, 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 I guess, to appease uh, both sides. But in corporate America, the Hispanic buying power, three trillion dollars. And if they were a country, they'd rank number five in the world in uh, gross to GDP. Hmm. The African-American buying power or black buying power in this country is one point seven trillion dollars. If we were a country, we'd be the 16th largest country in the world. Number five, number 16. Mm. And you think about corporations that don't understand that and don't value that and don't recognize. Not only does, you know, there's studies that show that the, mo the more diverse companies are the most profitable. That's one. Yeah. But also you have a whole economic pool mm -hmm. that at some point can be consumers of your product. I don't care if it's an industrial product. Some, some business somewhere will touch a home, a house, a car, or consumer goods, or travel, whatever it is, that, that, can, that can hit your bottom line. For you, how do you help clients today? And I don't mean the training you do. When, when you're having these conversations now, mm -hmm. and, and, and you're like, hold on, look, look guys, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Because you know they're scared, mm -hmm. right? And I've, I've talked to some folks in critical roles behind closed doors, right? Mm -hmm. And it's things they just don't want to say because there's fear, right? There yes. is legitimate fear. I can't say this. I can't do that. But from your perspective, like, how do you help them? How do you help them through this period of uncertainty? Well, there's a, there's a couple different directions you, you can go. Um, the one that's really the most effective, again, is keeping it simple. All right, what is credible versus what okay. is critical? Okay, the critical thing is to line up with the masses. Okay, so you're not an outlier and people not looking to take your money, people not looking to ostracize your product, etc. That's the historical American way. Yeah. Line up with the masses and then you're on the right side. Okay, the credible 
thing is to become educated about what you're missing about the other group. Yeah. You know, and fashion your infrastructure or the infrastructure of your institution or your company so that it aligns with the changing circumstances. Yeah. Right now, the narrative is changing because of sheer numbers. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Sheer numbers. So you can't have um, uh, 10 white people and uh, students and two black and two Latinos yesterday, and today you got uh, four Latinos, three blacks, and maybe five whites, yeah. and teach the same way. Okay? Yeah. The, the approach has to be different because you, whatever you're teaching, whatever you're selling, yeah. whatever you're creating has to be relevant. Yeah. To make it relevant, you got to understand the narrative of the people that are in your classroom or that you want to buy your product. Because you don't understand the narrative, now you're offended because people are telling you that what you're selling or what you're saying is not aligned with their history and their identity. Okay? Yeah. So the problem is, is your narrative is misaligned with your circumstances and it's changing whether you like it or not. Yeah. And so what do you hold on to that's historically been yeah. in your pocket? The money, okay, and in, in the, um, the uh, access route. Yeah. Money and access... Um, to the things that people are coming to your institution or trying to get hired into your company for. Yeah, yeah. So you hold on to that. And that's what we're seeing, uh, in my opinion, nationally, is, um, and it's public. Like you're saying, what's memorable now yeah. is that there's a blatant um, spike in um, what I'm called publicly publicly fashioned laws yeah. and, um, uh, hold on, I'm going to say publicly fashioned. I would say um, uh, defensive yeah. laws that shun other narratives and block people's access to those other narratives. So that's where the spike is happening and that's what's happening around the country right now. You, you know, I, I think the repercussions of this is going to be felt for generations. Even even if laws change six years from now, four years from now with the administration, the repercussions of this. So we talked about the economic buying power. We think about, you know, universities. Um, university has an enrollment of 10,000 students, right? 27 percent, 25 percent. This is this is not one in particular, but there's a couple like this that I've done research. Enrollment as high as, you know, 20 to 25 percent um, black, or you know, 36 to 40 percent people of color in mm -hmm. general. But yet there are people of color who are in the faculty tenure role count to less than five yeah. percent of the staff. People of color are 30 to 40 percent of the student body, mm -hmm. but tenure faculty make up less than five percent of the staff. It's the narrative. That's how the narrative changes. When you match the people who are responsible for molding the talent yeah. with the demographics of the people who are in the seat to get molded, yeah. then the narrative changes. That's a way to hold on and say, we don't think 
this narrative is relevant, so we're not going to look for talent that can teach it. You know, I think, I may be wrong, my, my numbers, I think there are seven black CEO of Fortune 500 companies, mm. and I think one or two of them are female, right? Mm. Female, black females. Um, when you think about black billionaires, we often think of Jay-Z, we think of Rihanna, mm. right? We think of uh, Oprah Winfrey, the most visible ones. Um, but the gentleman, I think, is uh, Robert Smith out of St. Louis who owns a technology company, yes. right? Mm. $5 billion, mm. something like that net worth, right? We don't hear about that. No. We don't hear about that. No. Nope. And, and he's doing some great things. So, like, you know, it's... Yeah, it's and his brother. It, you don't hear about that. No. Nope. But, but they'll, society will say, but look what Jay-Z and Puffy did, mm. right? I mean, look, look what Oprah did. And there's, there's not a knock on any of them. Rihanna, took, they took their brand and made the most of it. But it conditions our kids to believe, like, I got to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? I got to do that. But they don't know about Robert Smith of Missouri. Who yeah. Well, the, again, the narrative is, who is your hero? Ooh. And it's been defined for us since they brought us over here. <laughs> okay? Since, you know, since uh, the first slaves arrived uh, to this country, we've been told who to love, who to worship, and who to believe. You see? And though there's um, um, a real disconnect between how we got to this circumstance that I'm doing a webinar coming up, and it's, it's called Examining Diversity Paradigms. Yeah. Okay. And there's significant events and, and activities in American history that caused the paradigm to shift, just like people of color yeah. went from the N-word to color to Negro yeah, to yeah. black to African American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Right? And, and who knows what people like to be called today? We got Latinos, we got Latinx, yeah, right? Yeah. And so each time something changes, the narrative changes, and those who want to control it find a way to conceal those yeah. who would be outliers, like our billionaire brother yeah. in Missouri. Now yeah. he's visible, but we have to go find him yeah, you're absolutely and right. bring him to the table and say, talk to these young people, yeah. like what's happening uh, here in Charlotte with the 100 black men. Yeah. Okay? We're bringing him here, right, uh, to talk with the young people. But he should be just as visible as Jay-Z and Beyonce. Right. He should be just as visible because he and his brother made that company. Yeah. You see? But the narrative is if we let too many people know that it's possible to have or to amass that kind of wealth. Yeah from hard work and navigating the system uh -huh. that was created um, against their prosperity, yeah. then how many others are we going to have to deal with? It's interesting. You know, Bob Johnson, everybody know Bob Johnson created BET, right? Mm. Made all that money, sold it to Viacom. But I almost think that he became more famous for his divorce settlement with his wife that she got like <laughs> 700 million right afterwards, right? Mm. And it was a big deal, like, Kanye West, right? It, you know, as controversial as he is, right? All the stuff that he did. The moment he did something they didn't like, right? Stripped it. Yeah. 
And and when I say they, I mean just the masses, right? I'm not yes. talking about one particular gender. I'm talking about um, the masses who, who, who drive the economic engine, yeah. right? To say if I lose money, whether I'm white or black, it's, it's capitalism. They couldn't wait to say he's no longer a billionaire. As a matter of fact, literally the next day, yeah. he was a billionaire, and then they said definitively they print he's worth $400 million. I'm like, that quick? You've already assessed right, his yeah. wealth that quick? <laughs> and then two days later, Puffy was a billionaire. Yeah. So we took one off the list, and Puffy was like $980 million the day before, but he made $20 million overnight yeah. and became the next billionaire. If that's not controlling a narrative... Exactly, and, and that's the message, that... Somebody, regardless of how much wealth is amassed, somebody's controlling that person's wealth. Somebody's controlling the degree to which they have access to more or less wealth. Yeah. And that is the message. That's the narrative. So the, the idea behind everything nationally, um, um, and you said it earlier, if you don't comply, we take. Yeah. And yeah. see, and that's the thing. You take the, uh, the whole state of Wisconsin. I mean, you have a legislator saying for the entire Wisconsin system, and we're talking 25-plus campuses, you don't get another quarter if you don't get rid of all your DEI program and the people responsible for their implementation. Wow. The whole state. Yeah, and you can have one person who don't look like you or me yeah. that get up and say this is the right thing to do. And people are shaking in their boots. The whole state the says, whole state. anytime you do anything... I, no, he said, don't, don't, ain't no anytime you do it. It's if you have done it. Okay, so you're already guilty if you've done it in the past. And then you're the target. You're the target for elimination because that money needs to go to more mainstream academics. Yeah. And the belief of what is the ideal America, not the multicultural America. You know, in Florida, uh, again, I'm not a political strategist. In Florida, you know, I, I think the blanket sweep was, was a backlash, right? Definitely because of George Floyd and all these other things. But it started out that you, you couldn't teach um, black history. Yes. But then there was a backlash. But hold on, but we teach German history. We, mm -hmm. we teach Latin history. We teach history. So you're going to single out Black history, yes. right? So then it was like, okay, no, nah, we're not teaching nothing. No, exactly. We're not teaching nothing. Anything that, that aligns with, you know, um, teaching historical context of how people of color, regardless yeah. of what color they are, were treated in this country, we're yeah. not going to do it. Right. Do, do, you know, I didn't know this. I didn't know this. You, you're from Indiana. Yes. I'm from Indiana. We graduated Indiana State University, right? Mm-hmm. Bro, and undergrad in grad school, I did not know that three Tuskegee Airmen went to Indiana State University. Well, that's new to me. Three, right? <laughs> Hold on. Over 30 in the state. No. One of, one of the most famous ones from Gary, Indiana. Wow. Quentin. Mm. Quentin P. Smith. Another person who graduated from Indiana State University, her name is Willa Beatrice Brown. Willa Beatrice Brown was the first black woman to have a commercial pilot's license, a private pilot's license, an aviation mechanics license, and the first black woman to run from Congress. Went to Indiana State University. No. Nope. How's that for narrative? Man, come on. 
And then on top of that, she went and taught at Gary Roosevelt High School. Oh, my goodness. And then she went to Indy, went to Chicago and married a guy by the name of uh, Coffee Brown uh, or, or Coffee who started a flight school. And then their students end up eventually going to Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. So now we have four people from Indiana State University mm-hmm. that have ties to Tuskegee at some point. In Indiana, Ken, in Indiana, there were two Tuskegee Airmen bases during World War II. Wow. Two. Fort Ed, I mean, uh, Seymour, Indiana, and uh, Camp Atterbury in Edinburgh, Indiana. Mm. Two black Tuskegee Airmen bases mm. stationed there. When you think about that, you've you got to ask, what is the purpose <clears throat> for extracting that type of information? What, is it, what does it serve? Okay, and the answer is, is simply you control... As Carter G. Woodson says, yeah. control how people think about themselves. Yeah. Okay? You don't have to worry how they're going to behave or what they're going to do. They're going to stay in a certain place. Yeah. They're going to believe they should live in a certain area yeah. and that they should be able only able to do certain things. Yeah. And that's why the narrative is if you are a person of color who happens to be successful or a billionaire, yeah. your reward is you, got them, you get to leave out of that status of regular black folks or yeah. Hispanic folks or whatever it is. Okay? But the opposite is when there's Eurocentric success that you get to build a hedge around the area in which you were successful. Okay? And that's a historical narrative. Get out. If the, Only the better one of us gets out. Yeah. Okay? And then they pick those as our heroes and sheroes. You know... That's why people think King was the greatest engineer ever was. And right. they think he was also the greatest pilot. And they, that's all they know. Right, right, okay. right, 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 right. <laughs> and he wasn't any either. But that's all that's taught. Because they said this was your hero. And what he did applies to everything you could ever be. You, you know, uh, speaking of those pilots, I, I, I got to give a plug to my last employer, like Republic Airways. Because when I was there, man... Um, I was fortunate. I was fortunate enough that I, I had the, the, the latitude to go out and try to make a difference in that particular industry, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we created scholarships at Indiana State University. We created two endowments that gave um, $5,000 scholarships to um, black women who, who chose to be pilots or Hispanics, Latino, male or females. And uh, the scholarship was named after Willow Brown. Mm. Uh, the other was named after a Dominican Tuskegee pilot, Dominican, oh. who was stationed in Indiana. He was the first, if not the only, but he was the first Hispanic pilot, uh, Tuskegee Airman that died as a Tuskegee Airman. During training in 1943-44 over the Ohio River, his plane crashed. They were doing a training exercise. But no one taught us that, kid. No one taught us that. No. It's not part of the narrative. It, it, it hasn't been declared as relevant to the development of the student body, which historically was predominantly white. As it changes, again, what I said earlier, yeah. the narrative has to change because, one, there's two dynamics. One, the numbers yeah. change, but two, the teacher-student relationship, the dynamics of that yeah. will, will naturally change as well. Yeah. And, you know, this is where, you know, Malcolm said the 
the chickens will come home to roost. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's come home to roost is the scientific and proven theory, and not theory, it's a fact. People learn from people that they like, that they have better relationships with. Yeah. You see? And if you have a misalignment between people who either don't know the narrative or don't have the skills to relate to the narrative, yeah. then you're going to have more um, hostile discourse in the classroom. Okay? That's why the narrative changes so, I mean, the, uh, the uh, instructional base changes so slowly. You see, because people don't want to be bothered with yeah. the need to adjust that curriculum. Do, do you think, do you think the path that we're headed down we can course correct in the next three to four years. I mean, the repercussions you're going to feel mm -hmm. for years, right? Because you're going to have less people who, who, who don't go to college for whatever reason, like the gig economy, but people's experiences. This generation, this millennial generation, ain't having it, nope. right? Them, them jokers like, you know, yeah. Gen Xers like us and baby boomers, and they was like, look, you know, stand your ground, but you need that job. Yeah. Millennials like, no, I make money on YouTube. Yeah. I ain't having it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so I think uh, the short answer is no. Um, because the change of power and the hands that um, can reach into the deeper pockets yeah. is still going to be majority white male. Yeah. But the true power right now, I think, rests more with the student body. And doing just what you said, deciding that maybe college ain't for me. Yeah. Or, like, um, in fact, I was just uh, with a group Saturday and uh, with the 100 black men, and we were talking about what to do with the black males that are 18 to 24 that didn't choose college. Well, the trades are really booming right now. You know, HVAC and other electricity and things like that. You can make a mint based on the housing boom, if you can do electricity, construction, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, those types of things. Couple of years in college and you're making six figures, okay? Plus what's happening out on the internet and those yeah. types of things. So the point is, um, the value historically of college has significantly decreased, yeah. okay? And the quality of education uh, has significantly decreased because of disconnect between yeah. the instruction there and the go. instructed. There right? you go. So people are holding on to what they know as their narrative. Yeah. And that's where the, the issue is. You know, before we get out of here, because this has been a really good discussion, I think we could, this would be a 10-part series if we keep it. Before we get out of here, what's been the biggest aha moment that you've had in your career when you took on the, this, this, this monumental task in order to drive DEI in organizations? What, what's been your biggest aha moment? The language of inclusion is the everyday language. Mm. The language of inclusion is the everyday language. And we fail to realize that because it's pleasant, it's a um, let's get along, kumbaya type of language. It's be a good team player. Yeah. It's um, let's deal with the issues that are in your purview. Stay in your lane. You know, 
Um, and all those things I just said yeah. sound noble in terms of a person going to college for however many years and getting a degree for a specific discipline or line of work and staying in there. And, but people are multifaceted just like the workplace is. And to, to go into any place and say, to be successful, I must only be concerned with what's in my lane. They also said that you must be blind to the whole rest of the workplace. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Which is probably 98% other than what you was hired for. See? So wow. you got to think about that and how profound it is when a person, um, like you take the DEI space, well, it's a, uh, before, you know, it's not nearly as popular as it was just 10 years ago, but you got people saying anybody can do that. Anybody yeah, can do that work. man. Anybody can yeah. do that. Okay? Okay. The narrative is, is all you need is a good heart and care for people. You see? And yeah. there's nothing, you know, further for this, from the truth in higher education. But because that's been the narrative pushed, then it's easy for people to say, well, you know, I like you know, black people or you know, Latino people, um, but that's not my pay grade. That's above my pay grade. And no, I don't like the way they're being treated, but I'm not supposed to do anything about that. I wasn't hired to be concerned with that. See, I, I call that sideline leadership, man. Yeah, it's sideline, and you know, but it's true. And but people get paid and rewarded. Yeah. yeah. They get the reward system encourages inactivity. It encourages silence. The greatest enemy against DEI there is. Man, <laughs> dude, we can go. But I, 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 that last title, sideline leadership, I think I need to, I need to go coin that. <laughs> and there's a whole series we can do on that, right? Okay. We we talked about. Uh, talk about so much, man. Well, listen. Um, website again, so people who are interested in, in having you come speak or want to talk to you about, you know, maybe potentially them help helping build uh, strengthen their DEI program. How can they reach you? Okay, thank you. Uh, our website is coopdeleu.com, C-O-O-P-D-I-L-E-U.com, or you can email at transform at coopdeloo.com, the word transform. All right. You heard that. You'll see it on the bottom of the screen. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Coopwood, my brother, my mentor, as always, man, I'm I'm always grateful, dude. I'm always blessed to be in your presence. So much you have poured into me over the years. And, uh, dude, I'll come back next year and do another podcast. Next year and do another podcast. All right. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the In His Voice podcast. We'll see you next time. Take care.